Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, we interviewed Dylan Jones, the Editor-in-Chief of British GQ and GQ Style. So a significant one for Eleanor because uh, we did it on her very last day working at GQ at Vogue House on Hanover Square. A really interesting interview. We talked uh, to Dylan about his career, starting off in magazines in the early 80s, in the style decade, as he put it, moving to Fleet Street in the 90s, and then his tenure at GQ since 1999. And we also talked about where the magazine and ideas of masculinity fit into the current cultural moment. It was a really interesting episode, and we hope you enjoy it. So we're here with Dylan Jones at GQ, and thanks so much for taking the time to, to come on the show. Can we start off by talking about the, the 30th anniversary of, of the magazine, of uh, you know, what, what it means and what you're, what you're trying to do with this, this issue, this state of man issue? Normally, when uh, people do anniversaries, they tend to use it as an excuse to sort of beat their chest um, or wave flags and remind people how brilliant they are and uh, usually by repeating some sort of greatest hits and saying look what we've done aren't we clever Um, A we've done that in the past B it doesn't really feel like the the world wants that right now and C I thought that there was a genuine opportunity post the instigation that's the right word of me too just in the last year, I think that men have questioned themselves and looked at themselves and asked questions that they probably, in a way, they probably haven't done before. And so we commissioned a big piece of work from YouGov. And normally when people do this, ad agencies or magazines or any sort of media content provider, it's done for expedient commercial or editorial reasons. But I actually thought there was a genuine need for it, actually. And pivoting from that is a huge array of fascinating pieces that are running in the magazine and on the website throughout this month about everything from well, mental health issues, suicide, um, uh, gender relationships, all, all, all forms of things which are kind of fascinating material, actually. It's been, it's a, it's been a... I think we've produced a very, very good product, and I think it's been enriching for everyone in the process, actually. And how does what's in the magazine now compare to what the sort of thing you might have been running five or five or ten years ago? I think our job, without trying not to sound incredibly pompous about it, is to, as well as reflect public opinion or the opinions of people that we interact with, it's all to, also to anticipate it too. So I think the magazine and the brand has been changing for quite some time. Uh, I would say the the quality of the magazine is no different from what it was five years ago because I think the quality will... Certainly I've tried ever since I've been here to make the quality incredibly high. We, we pay more for our journalism than anyone else in Fleet Street apart from sort of half a dozen columnists who work for the Nationals. Um... I think the fundamental change is that I think that you'll see more objectification of men in the magazine than you, than you will women. That's changed a lot. I mean, when I inherited the brand over 19 years ago, if I'd have put a man on the c- cover, I probably would have been fired within the first six months. And, I, and I'm not exaggerating. Yeah. 
um, because the, the, the climate and the very aggressive newsstand culture then was very, very different from what it is now. Do you worry, though, that now that men have been encouraged to be more metrosexual and take care of their grooming and makeup and take care of themselves in the same way that women were encouraged to 50 years ago, that we're now going to see the same issues that women have just slightly gone over now happening to men? We're already seeing yeah. them. And uh, I, I, saw this hap- I, I saw this happening 30 years ago yeah. um, when men's magazines... Um, started again in this country in, in the mid-80s uh, because we were fundamentally turning men into a different type of consumer. Um, yeah, of, of course you'll see that. You'll, you'll see issues with uh, body insecurity, dysmorphia, all kinds of insecurities which are driven by uh, uh, ideas of perfection and dressing well and having a better body and we're in a culture now also where you can literally sort of sexuality is no longer prescriptive and you're no longer encouraged to be prescriptive in a sort of pigeonholed way whereas in the in the 80s the prefix of choice was designer designer food designer furniture etc etc then it became luxury. Luxury was the prefix. Luxury holidays, luxury lavatory paper, etc., etc. And for quite some time, it's been bespoke. Um, and bespoke these days doesn't just mean a bespoke pair of shoes or a bespoke suit. It's bespoke bodies. You can basically tinker around with your body until you've. And I'm talking in terms of cosmetics. I'm talking ta- 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 in terms of gender realignment. We can, you know, whatever we can. We can decide what's between our legs as, as, as much as what's on our feet. Can we roll back? We want to come back to the contemporary magazine a bit, but roll back with, with your career to, to when you first had, you know, growing up, when you first had an interest in, in working in this area. Where, did, where do you trace that, trace that to originally? You grew up in Ely, right? No, I was born in Ely because okay. my father was in the Air Force and we just happened to be moving through Ely when my mother right, decided to have have me. So, um, but no, we lived in uh, air force bases all over the country, okay. all over Europe, Italy, Malta, Cyprus, every every county in the UK. Um, uh, yeah, from a very early age, I was very interested in uh, that idea of the hub of of moving somewhere where things were happening and if you if you live in the wilds of East Anglia literally you're driven to the city I mean it's the the pull is incredibly magnetic see I was always obsessed with uh, London with being at the sort of center of things swinging London Andy Warhol glam rock all of those things were very I was a very you know impressionable Teenager. And how and are you consuming that? Through radio, through TV, or through... Uh, principally through... Well, through all forms of media. And in those days, obviously because you couldn't just open a telephone, you had to seek it out quite aggressively. Um, but I was very inquisitive. And, um, yeah, I started buying... the My first magazine that I bought on a subscription was a magazine called Goal, which was a, a football magazine in about 1970. Then I moved on to a magazine called Pop Swap, which was sort of like smash hits, but seven or eight years earlier. 
Then I became a devotee of the, of, of the NME in 72. And at that time, the NME was selling a quarter of a million copies every week. But we all thought we were very smart because we didn't think anyone else knew about the NME. And it was our own little club. And the NME, and edited in its pomp by Nick Logan, was the way that we not only found out about music, but we found out about all sort of um, transgressive forms of culture, literature, politics, um, uh, film, uh, all of these things. Um, Did you want to work for the enemy? Yeah, I did. I remember sending in a record review when I was about 13 for one of their things. And um, yeah, I, re- I they reply? really did. Um, no, was, that, was it the enemy that ran the hip young gunslingers wanted and yeah. that forged the uh, career of Judy uh, Birchall? Uh, Judy Birchall and Tony Parsons and also Paul, Paul Morley too and a whole stream of people. Um, so yeah, very uh, sort of the enemy was, was, was my world and then moved to London um, you went to art school I went to Chelsea School of Art in 1977 which is great living in Chelsea high to punk rock very exciting then moved to St Martin's School of Art and the sort of blitz years started um, and then and you always wanted to be a journalist no I didn't actually I didn't I went to art school because I wanted to go to art school from the age of 12 or 13 I was obsessed with going to art school I've been very I've been the least strategic person I I know in terms of my career. I've never thought strategically. Probably, um, I've had an awful lot of fun and freedom that way. I'm I'm sure I could have been smarter in many respects. What did your parents want you to do? Um, I can't remember actually. How did they respond? Probably go in the RAF because my brother's in the RAF. I think they wanted me to go into the RAF. Was your dad a pilot? Sorry? Was your dad a pilot? He was for a short time, yeah. um, and so how did you move from, from art school into this kind of 80s emergent magazine? World? In 1983, magazines launched in the space of three months, ID, The Face and Blitz, um, and it was incredibly exciting. That was the dawn of the, what pejoratively became the style decade. Um, I was plugged into that immediately, like the enemy was like thrown over my shoulder, and it's like it's all about ID and The Face now. Um, and after a while, you very, if you're living in the centre of London and you're consuming all this stuff, you very quickly, in a very conceited way, begin to think, well, actually, I'm not just a consumer of this stuff in, in these magazines. I'm, I'm res- kind of part responsible for it. I'm going to these clubs, I'm buying these records. I know this person, I know that fashion designer, I know this journalist, etc., etc. Very conceited. Um, and then for my degree show in 1981, I produced a, a sort of... A fantasy, sort of postmodern picture love story magazine. Uh, incredibly pretentious. Did you have ambitions to be a fine artist? No, I was doing the graphics and photography okay. course. And I was an appalling photographer. I, I had no interest in it really. I thought I did, but I wasn't any good. I left St. Martin's and then for about 18 months didn't. I just. I was what did you call your magazine for your degree? Oh, God. I think it was called something like a modern romance. It was, some, it, it was something <laughs> like that. <laughs> Uh, was it well received? Um, well, I also did a photo story on on gay action men, action men having sex with each other in various <laughs> different. You're probably arrested for doing that. Now. Um, what year was this? Eighty-one. Okay. And then I was a layabout for eighteen months. I went to a lot of nightclubs. I mean, my my job was going to nightclubs. Basically, it was terrible. I lived in a, a, a housing association flat in Brixton. 
Uh, I worked as a cocktail barman in the fridge very briefly. I was a film extra. I shoot down Roger Moore's plane in Octopussy. Oh. I was in a David Bowie, Catherine Deneuve vampire movie called The Hunger. Um, was there, I mean, something that, that we always talk to people about on the podcast is, is money and financing. Was, was London a different and a more affordable place to be a young person with creative Well, it was in the height of the, the recession, the depression. It was 1980, 1981, strikes... Um, yeah, I, I think I, I think it must be tougher now because things are more extreme now. I think it must be terrible for uh, young people, particularly working class people, to, to sort of m- move on. In those days, you'd be in you'd be in a housing association, a flat, or a council flat, or squatting, and you just spiral into Lon- London. You can't do that anymore. Um, mm. But we always found money. I don't know where we found money from, but we always found money. Were you writing at all during no, the time? No, I was literally, I was, a, I was awful as a labour. I was so conceited because I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I was not going to do anything that I didn't want to do. <laughs> Incredibly conceited. And <laughs> what arrogant. was your loftiest ambition at that time? I honestly don't know. It's terrible. And I say to my kids sometimes, I said... Um, I mean, don't worry if you ha- if it hasn't if yeah. something hasn't got you yet because it didn't with me. I was, I'd, I'd like to. I mean, I could say that there was a, that the narrative arc was far more um, sort of um, uh, expedient than it was, and on paper I can make it look really clever. But for no, for two years I was like didn't do anything. I just went to nightclub. So how did you get into these these new magazines? That were I was. Um, Every day, I was living in Peckham at the time, Camberwell, Peckham, and I'd get up as late as possible in order to have one meal a day, and I'd go across <laughs> to the chip shop, and I'd have, and then I'd watch Channel 4, and then I'd go out. And you got in it everywhere for free, and you knew people who ran clubs, and you'd get on the tube, or you'd walk, and then, um, yeah, that, that, that's what I did. And then I got a call one day um, from, I don't know how I got a call, because I didn't have a telephone. Anyway, a photographer friend of mine called Mark Bailey, no relation to David Bailey, was taking some pictures for ID magazine and he wanted someone to turn up and ask to interview these people and I had nothing other to do other than get up late and eat chips and go to a nightclub and watch Channel 4, so I said, sure. Uh, and in those days, the questions would have been, where do you buy your clothes and how much do you hate Margaret Thatcher? You know. Um, anyway, I dutifully typed all this stuff on. And Is that what you asked? Hmm? Is that what you asked? I can't remember, but, prob- <laughs> but probably. Uh, I, I typed all this stuff on my red Remington that my father had given me, and I sent it in, I don't know, delivered it, posted it, I can't even remember, and then f- forgot all about it. And about ten days later, I was staying with a friend in St. Charles Square in Labrock Grove, and Terry Jones was on the phone, so it's a phone call for you, and I picked it up, and he says, um, do you want a job? Literally. Terry Jones was the editor? Yeah, he started the magazine, he edited the magazine. I was gonna, yeah, I was going to ask, what was like the ownership structure? Who was putting the money up for these magazines? They were all independent. Yeah. Everything was independent. He was from his um, uh, top floor flat in West Hampstead, actually killed them. Um, and I said, uh, 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 yeah, okay. And I went to start working for I- ID, and in five minutes realised that I sort of never wanted to do anything else. I found the whole thing intoxicating and it was brilliant. Did you have a job title at that point? I don't think so. Um, what are your first... Staff writer, I, I can't remember. Do you remember the first piece of journalism after that that you did? 
for them. I would have been interviewing someone. I mean, um, the thing in those days, I can't, I couldn't write. I can't really write. I've, I've learned to write. Um, it's, I mean, I quite, I can, I can write. I mean, it's, it's a craft. But I tell people that it's, you can learn. It's not like you don't mm. have to be born with innate gifts. It's, um, and all the stuff I read now for the first couple of years, you know, growing up in public, it's gibberish. Very enthusiastic. And, and we're talking about the right people and we've got the right opinions, but it's gibberish. What of people now, of, of young people writing now? You no, I'm talking about my okay. writing when I first started it. When did you start reading your, your old work? I do it all the time because I fill it stuff like crazy, yeah. Because actually the older you get, the re- you realise the lives and the people you've touched are quite kind of... Ex- yeah. I'm, I'm doing a project now and it's... Um, uh, you kind of realize, Christ, and you kind of forget, you know, because then you're just kids, just mucking about. Anyway, I worked at ID. I became editor. Did that for four years. Went to work for Nick Logan. Worked you on the face. Became editor within a year, right? Yeah, something like that. How yeah. did that happen? It just happened. Did, would you want to be editor? Was that um, unusual to become editor? So uh, maybe. Um, and with these magazines, what, what were their circulation and stuff like that at that stage? Oh, I think we used to tell people we were probably selling 60,000. I'm sure we were probably selling 15. I mean, I've got no idea. The thing is, pre-internet, you forget how enormously influential these magazines were. Mm. Which we didn't at the time, because we we knew. We were, again, we were so conceited. It's like arrogance, the arrogance of youth. We thought we were so important. And in a very small way, we were. But in a very small way. Um... But it was very, very exciting, very intoxicating. And I worked, uh, went to work for Nick Logan for four years, edit, ended editing Arena. And then in 92, I went to work for newspapers. I thought, I didn't particularly want to, but I thought I ought to. The Observer. Yeah, I went to work for The Observer, worked there. Then they were bought by The Guardian. We all got fired. I got a huge check. It was brilliant. <laughs> uh, I tell people, you should never worry when you've been, everybody gets fired. How old were you when you were fired? Mm, 32. And why did you feel you had to go and work for a newspaper? Because uh, I was a, a journalist. I thought, I need to go and work, work on, on a newspaper. So I did. And then I spent most of the 90s working at the Sunday Times in various different positions. Loved that. And then worked at the Sunday Times until 99, until I was offered the job here. And I thought, oh, that's int-. I did never thought I'd go back to mag- magazines. Were you reading GQ at this time? No, I, did, I didn't particularly like it, actually. <laughs> why not? Because uh, I didn't think the writing was very good. I mean, it's a great brand, it was mm. a fantastic brand, but I didn't never particularly did it. I didn't like the journalism. And I was editing Arena when GQ started, and I always thought they got the skew of GQ wrong. But um, anyway. And for, for a generation who perhaps weren't familiar with them, those, those iconic 80s magazines, The Face, ID, stuff like that, what, what were they? What was the, the package that they were offering? It, they were the first magazines to... I mean, it, the whole idea of the style decade, the 80s, it's very pejorative. And actually, if you analyse it, and I'm writing about this now, it's not, it's part of a continuum from, well, the end of the Second World War right up until now. Um, But because money culture was changing in this country, because there was more of an emphasis on the way that things looked, fashion, MTV, designer furniture, makeup, we became damned in a way. But if you look at the editorial mix of a magazine like ID or The Face or Blitz even, these were magazines which were targeted at ostensibly young people, but they weren't just about music. They were about fashion. They were about architecture. They were about uh, 
social trends, food, etc., etc. Um, and they were treating consumers with a bit more respect, I suppose. Plus, it was the start of uh, a media culture aimed at men. I mean, Nick Logan launched Arena in '86, which was the first proper men's magazine to be launched in this country since the end of Town, which had been owned by Michael Hesse. I was going to ask, had there been a previous kind of age of these publications? Yeah, late '50s, early '60s, Town magazine. Nova was a great magazine, but ostensibly a women's magazine, but there hadn't really been men's magazines in, in the modern era. What do you miss about being an editor then, in terms of the impact? Is the impact different that you're having? I don't know. I think that GQ is a huge brand. It's a global brand. Our footprint is enormous. Um, but then we're swamped by the tech giants. So our, pr our footprint in that respect is quite small. I go back to 30 years ago thinking about those magazines. They have very sort of small um, circulations, but a huge influence again. So I don't know. I think I've been very lucky. I think I've been very lucky to work on really good brands. It's been fun. Could you tell us a bit about what being a magazine editor involves? Like on a, what would a typical day or a typical week, or maybe, you know, if the cycle is monthly, how does that work? Where well, are It's different you? now you, because now you? you're, we, we produce a monthly magazine which is incredibly labour-intensive, which we're very proud of. We produce a fashion magazine that comes out twice a year, and we, we produce a website which changes every, every 20 minutes, or at least it ought to. Plus we have lots of social platforms, plus we do lots of events, we do lots of parties, we, you know, we show off, etc., etc., etc. The parts of the job are incredibly glamorous and a lot, a lot of fun. Parts of it are quite prosaic and quite tedious. A lot of far more managerial work than anyone would might consider. Um, but the important—I remember Tom Wolfe. Not that I'm equating myself with the genius of Tom Wolfe, but I remember he said once said many many years ago that he had no interest in being anything other than a journalist. He had no interest in rising through the ranks of a newspaper because he said the further you got to the top, the more your job became like the job in any other industry. You're working in the chemical in, in, in industry, etc. Et it, it's about management. And management's very important, and I, I enjoy management, but the creative, I never, there have been quite a number of jobs that I've not taken, which would have been probably better for my career, and certainly would have paid me more, because they were more managerial jobs. Um, not in this company, but um, previously. And I, did, um, I didn't want to lose that relationship with editorial. I mean, I have done occasionally in, in the past, and I haven't enjoyed it. It hasn't made me happy. And I don't see if you're lucky enough to be able to choose something that makes you happy, then I'll do that. <laughs> well, you write quite regularly for GQ, I, I'd say. Is that something that you consciously make an effort to do so that you keep it going because you don't want to lose that? No, I do it for selfish reasons. I do it because I, I enjoy it. I do it because... I want to uh, meet people, I want to, yeah, I, I like writing. I remember Rosie, my friend Rosie Boycott, who was a magazine editor and newspaper editor, she always says you can't be, you can either be a great writer or a great magazine editor, and I think that's not true. Really? Yeah, I'm conceited enough to think that, um, no, I mean, I think I'm a, 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 a pretty good e editor, and I've become a good writer, but it's by through a lot of work. 
because I'm not a natural. I'm actually found out recently that I'm borderline dyslexic, which I did, didn't realise. Oh yes, Nick Jones told me that on the phone. Yeah. And how, just on the kind of mechanics of, of putting it together, how big is the team here and, and on that Far month? too big. <laughs> well, I'm leaving now, so that's yeah. <laughs> smaller. I remember we had a, a brilliant publisher called Peter Stewart, um, who was here when I arrived. And uh, when people came in for a meeting or something, and they were you know, doing small talk, and, he, he, and someone would say, how many people work here? And he'd go, about half. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's loads of people working. I don't know. It, it depends. There's probably 30 editorial, maybe 40 including GQ style, um, increasing number of video people, whole commercial department. I mean, it's quite a big team. And how does that compare to when you started in terms of the overall? Oh, we had six people, I think, when we started. I mean, uh, on ID, how many were there? Six? Okay. Maybe four full time. Arena, ten, maybe eight. You know. And how do you balance the kind of ambassadorial role, you know, going to the shows or, or things like that with with the actual putting of the, the thing together. What do you mean, how do you balance it? What, what do you mean? How do you balance it? And wh wh what's the split, I suppose, between those two? Oh, I don't know. The thing is, you have to enjoy it. Yeah. You can't be a, a wallflower. You can't be a shrinking violet. You have to have a certain amount of ego and you have to want to go out. Sure. Um, and I always, I think if you're a woman and, you know, you've got young kids, I think it's different but the com some of the conversations I ever hear in this building about people moaning about having to do things I mean sorry if mm -hmm. you don't want to do it there are thousands perhaps hundreds of thousands of people would love to be given the opportunity to get on an aeroplane and go and sit on a chair in front of people walking up and down in Milan I mean come on you have to enjoy it yeah but that's fun you have to um, yeah I mean it, it, it remains fun it's Sometimes it's a bit tedious having to go to d dinners and, you know, lie about how much you like someone's shoes. But, mm. I mean, it's not difficult. And actually, most people in this industry are fun. And most people in this industry are fun to be with. And we are in the... It's a very different environment now, far more commercially driven. But I've always been very commercially driven. And I think if you work with the right partners... The opportunities now are much bigger. I mean, we directed, we produced and directed five short films for Gucci last year. They sat on all our platforms and all their platforms globally. That's huge. And we've just, I think, about to finish the second iteration of the second bunch of films. So we make ten films all, all together. That's really exciting. Um, and you tend to go to things that you, you enjoy people's company. It, it, and it's reflected. It, if you have a difficult relationship with a brand, it's probably because the people involved with the brand are not particularly smart or engaging. When you began your editorship of GQ, um, what were the biggest, what were the major changes that you made? To Editorial. Ed, uh, I, my, when they asked me if I was interested, I said, well, I, I, the journalism isn't, isn't any good. So basically we got rid of everyone and hired the best possible journalists we could. How difficult do you find it getting rid of a team in that way? Oh, I, I don't take any mm. pleasure in firing anyone, but I mean, you have to, sometimes mm. you have to make changes. Mm. But I, no, I don't enjoy it at all. Mm. I know some people do. I think it's, it's, it's necessary sometimes. But my pitch was very simple. It was A.A. Gill directs a porn film. <laughs> yes, that's a great pitch. Could you elaborate? Yeah, I, I worked with um, 
Adrian at the Sunday Times. Not that we were friends, I didn't really know him very well. Um, he was, at the time, the best, most famous, probably most expensive journalist in, uh, in Britain. And I said that if I get this job, I will hire a Adrian Gill, which I did. Um, Had you spoken to him about that possibility? No, no not, 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 not at all. And one of the ideas was I want you to... Um, and then so I eventually had to make... When I got the job, I had to make this thing happen. So I rang him up and said, this is what I want you to do. I want you to write and direct a hardcore porn film. How did you get that idea? How did I get the idea? Yeah, so what, what made you think of it? Uh, because at that time, men's magazines were quite ribald. It was a very different culture. And magazines were quite sexual. And I thought, it would be a funny thing to do, wouldn't it? Get the, get the best writer in Britain to, to write and direct a hardcore porn film. So we made it happen. There's a theme here after your first magazine with the gay action. It's true, actually. <laughs> yeah. Latent sexual repression. And where, <laughs> both at that time and going forward, did you see the place of, of writing and of reportage and, and things like that in the, in the mix? Because that was the thing that always excited me. Um... And going back to the days of the NME, you very quickly, not that I was, you know, I went to a secondary modern school, I wasn't very academic, a terrible academic career actually, but when you were interested in something, say someone like David Bowie, you wanted to read Nick Kent or Charles Sharp Murray or Ian MacDonald write about David Bowie, you didn't want to read some hack in the Daily Mirror or in a in, in pop swap or something it's uh, so I knew what good writing was from a relatively early age I suppose because I was interested in the in the subject matter who did you bring on after a girl so oh Adrian Gill Dominic Lawson Boris Johnson Simon Kellner Tom Wolf mm. we had Rod Little Piers Morgan um, basically as contributors not yeah not, yeah um, Andrew Neil in the 80s had reinvented the Sunday Times by aping magazine culture. And I thought, well, I'll, I'll just, do, I'll just do, do the inverse. And having worked on newspapers for eight or nine years, I just thought, well, just, just, get, the best, just, just get the best writers. And how quickly did you see the brand change after you did that and the readership change? Well, you think it changes really quickly, but it actually takes a very long time. It's perception as much as anything else. That's the biggest problem biggest problem is perception. I had a meeting, I had a meeting, I was talking to someone last night, and uh, at this thing I was making, you know, chit-chatting at this event, and uh, I, I realised quite quickly this woman had no idea what I was talking about. She's quite elderly. But um, it's very easy to think that everyone knows your brand and knows everything, about, but m most people don't. Well, that's, oh, I was just going to say that what I find frustrating, particularly among my friendship group, I'm 25, is that often they will not realise that GQ has such an impressive long form and they will see it as a fashion magazine. And yeah. they'll often think that I just write about fashion yeah. when I don't think I ever some, have. Some people do. How Does that frustrate you? Um, it niggles. It doesn't yeah. frustrate me. I mean, it's, um, it is it is what it is. It's like people... It surprises me, though, that people still think that sometimes. Some uh, people... People have other things going on in their lives. They're not that <laughs> interested. It's like people think, you know, you could say that about David Bowie. Think, uh, people, if people don't care about yeah. something, they'll have a very scant idea of what that person means or what that object means. It's like not having any interest in modern furniture. And with these writers you're bringing on board, were you assigning them ideas or asking them to generate them? How writers never have any ideas. That's one of my f 
fun. I realised that quite early on, and, and I, I actually, I, re- I, I was, because I have a lot of ideas. He says conceitedly, I, I used to have, I, I wrote quite a lot because, because, because um, commissioning editors love other people to have ideas because writers never have ideas. Okay. They literally never have ideas. Has it got worse? Yeah. Your book career, you know, the books that you've written and things like that. How has that fitted around your? Your magazine, right? Again, because I like writing, and because a lot of what I do and what have done is, is managerial, is, and I enjoy having projects. You know, it's um, um, yeah. And your new one, you're working on something at the moment. I've just written a book. Um, Eleanor helped me enormously when I wrote a big book on David Bowie a couple of years ago. I couldn't have actually done it without her. She was brilliant. Did a lot of the um, oh, legwork. And I've just written a book about Wichita Lineman, okay. the song. Um, a whole book about a song. How that's that's what my wife said. She said, oh, that's interesting, darling. Why? <laughs> In fact, Jimmy Webb, the, who wrote Wichita Lineman, <laughs> said a similar thing, actually. Um, I've just written that, and that will come out next year. How do you write things so quickly? Because I don't have hobbies. When, at, when do you write? At night, in the morning, in cars, on aeroplanes. you're here so early, normally. But I... I write quite quickly, and I write on a phone. I used to write on, on a BlackBerry. Yeah, I wrote a six thousand word feature on Tony Bennett coming back from New York, having interviewed him, and I wrote it on a BlackBerry. And it was a pretty good piece, frankly. I don't know how you could write that on a BlackBerry. Um, That's amazing. No, I enjoy it. What's the kind of connecting fibre between the different book projects you've done? You've written about Bowie. You've done the David Cameron book. You've written about music. What are you? Is this a consistent thing you're scratching out with? Recently, I think it took me a long while to, to kind of have... Again, I haven't been expedient or strategic in my, in my book's um, choices at all. And some of my book choices have been like someone saying, would you like a ride in a helicopter? You go, well, it'd be nice. Do that. Yeah, why not? Um, how, how many of your books have you been approached to do as opposed to you thinking of doing them yourself? It'd be 50-50. Okay. But recently, for the last ten years, I've been fairly consistent, and um, I think I know what I'm doing now, and I think I know what what the brand means. So, um, uh, yeah. are you able to say which one has done the best? Oh, Bowie. Bowie. Yeah. Mm. Which um, was a biography. Sorry. It was a biography. It's an oral biography. Yeah. yeah. And I'm doing a similar book now on the new romantics. Coming back to the magazine world, obviously the, the time since you've been editor has been enormous changes in the, the business of journalism and yeah. the internet and all of that. How have you negotiated that, that, the change, the advent of the internet, the change of what a magazine means? We were very lucky because the magazine has always operated at sort of the, the top end of the, of the market. Um, which, in some respects, has made it easier. Um, we work for a very good company. Um, we work for a company that are not... I mean, lots of companies have made very rash decisions and have had a sort of knee-jerk reaction to the changes in consumer patterns and delivery systems. Um, sort of gradual investment. Um, uh, knowing, well... Being confident, being what, early. What is circulation now? Sorry? How does circulation today compare to... It's not that different, actually. I think our circulation is about 115, and I think when I started, it was about 124. In print? That yeah. Is. yeah. And digital, uh, the digital edition's done super well recently. Hasn't it? It's doing fantastically well. Yeah. Um, 
it needs to be better, and it will be better. But um, it's it's yeah. I mean, we're we're in a pretty good place. And with um, budgets as well, we always try and talk to everyone about about money on the podcast. The amount of resources that you have to produce the product. How does that compare now to when you started? You have to be quite clever with money. My policy is, I remember once working for someone who said, there's only one thing worse than being over budget, is being under budget. Right. So we spend every penny that's on the table. I'm not going to tell you how, how we do that. <laughs> but I mean, it's a constant juggle. You're juggling all the time. And because we have so many more things to do now, because we have all these social platforms, because we have a website, because we have events, we have this, that and the other. Um, you need partnerships for a lot of it because the money doesn't grow exponentially. That it doesn't grow in accordance with the number of um, projects and um, operations and platforms and the different, uh, the different things we have to do these days. What worries you the most as an editor? Is it money that's often on your mind in terms of... Uh, many things worry me uh, to do with the industry, um, from very prosaic things, from sort of existential things. I think that uh, fundamentally I worry that young people now, anyone under the age of 30, there's an expectation that you don't have to pay for things. You don't have to pay for content. You don't have to pay for news. Um, Do you see that with your daughters? Do you encourage them to? Yeah, and I've lost that argument. And for them, I mean, we'd been going out to, we'd be leaving the house, and they'd say, "Where are you going?" Say, "Oh, we're going to, to the, the cinema to see X." Oh, seen it's rubbish. So how are you seen it? And of course, they've already stolen it on, online from some <laughs> Chinese website. Um, Do they read GQ? Do you ever ask them their opinions? I ask them their opinions all the time. They're withering in their appraisal. What have you said? Oh, have you done that? It's How awful. Awful. <laughs> uh, they're 18 and 20. Interestingly, the issue that they've probably read more than it is the one that's out now. Really? Yeah. They don't... I mean, they're quite judgmental and quite mm. binary. They don't understand why we've done Jordison, Jordan Peterson because they hate him. Um, they don't understand the nuances of why we would give him airtime. But no, they've read the new issue because it, 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 it appeals to them. But I tell you, they wouldn't cross this room to buy a magazine. They've been brought up in a house full of media, full of print, full of news, full of fashion, full of, you know, and they, everyone they know is, works in our industries. But they wouldn't cross this room to buy a magazine. And it, you That's the problem. You mentioned earlier in the interview that, you, that the magazine pays higher than, than regular British standards. And actually, our, our, page, our word rate hasn't gone up. It's just that everyone else has come down. Can you say what it is? No. Um, I mean, I've, I've written for the magazine, I'm not going to say on air what it is, but it's certainly, you know, a lot of the work I do now is for, for US magazines who will, uh, who pay a lot more, you know, a, a lot more than that. And, you know, At you're, the moment. Yeah. But, I mean, do you see, um, in you know, trying to run, uh, you know, really ambitious, big reported pieces, is it, you know, the Americans will pay twice as much for that kind of thing? Does, does which obviously has to do with circulation and things like that, but is that willingness or, or reluctance to pay a lot for that kind of work, does that have a factor on the British journalistic culture, do you think? No, I say, I think that British journalism is, I would say, better than American journalism. I think that often American journalism is more rigorous, 
but I think British journalism has more swagger, um, is more opinionated. Uh, I mean, I, sometimes I read something in, in the New York Times, and after reading for eight inches, I've given up, because I, I mean, get to the point. Um, I remember once I did a piece for a, mag, for a, for a magazine, it was a Condé Nast magazine, American magazine, and um, I was at home in Shepherd's Bush with my girlfriend, and the phone rang about eight o'clock in the evening, and it was a fact checker. Um, and this, I can't remember what I'd written. It was, I think, it was a fairly anodyne piece. Anyway, I'm on the phone for about 20, 20 minutes, and initially, I'm quite impressed with the level of diligence that they're, you know, that they're, they're, they're affording me here. And after a while, she asked me a question. She said, "What's that?" I said, "That's called an opinion." <laughs> um, so they are rigorous, but it makes. It, 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 I think American journalism often is uh, uh, duller than British journalism. Although it's interesting that a lot of, I suppose, writers that you've nurtured who've come through GQ, people like Sam Knight or Ed Caesar, have have then moved on to write. Well, for the the magazine they end up moving to is the New Yorker which I would still say is the best written magazine in the world and I don't think anyone can take any issue with that yeah. and, 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 and people like um, Sam and Ed Caesar I mean I'm, I think it's great they're like our babies mm. that have gone off to write for the New Yorker, I mean that's terrific you know, when that happens to you I'll be <laughs> equally as proud you, know. you, you said that um, writers don't have any ideas and I know that people pitch directly to you what impresses you with pictures and features that you're getting in your inbox and what do you wish you had more of? What you never need is someone going, I'd love to interview Madonna. Do you, still, do you get that a lot? Yeah. Uh, by, writer, by well-known writers? No, by that, people think that's a really smart pitch. It's like, well, if I want an interview with Madonna, I will get the best person for that job and it isn't going to be you. <laughs> um, Who it's, would it be? It, it, what impresses us is, is, is an a new idea or an interesting idea and a display of their ability to achieve what they promise. Do you get that often? No. Very rarely. I mean, very, very, mm. very rarely. Could we return to, to what we started to a bit with, with the 30th anniversary and, and, and so forth and this kind of reimagining in some ways of what it is to be a man and what it is to be a men's magazine. One thing, it, what has happened to the kind of flesh quotient in the magazine? There isn't the time you've been... But there was when you started? Yes. And when, how did that change evolve? Um, it changed because even when I inherited, as I say, when I inherited the magazine, it was a very different culture. And uh, sex, or at least glamour, was um, the perception was very different to what it is now. And I haven't done this because it would be boring to, but I think that if you looked at the every issue from then to now... I'd see that basically the percentages have just gone like this. Yeah. And in terms of pictorial displays of women, we've gone kind of 180 degrees, but I think that we've always been ahead of mm. where the culture is. I hope we are. And was it very different with, I suppose when, when you started, the, the lads mags, FHM and Zoom and stuff, were a big part of the market. And yeah. Were they a comp competitor at that time, or were you always... Well, yeah, because we had a, um, uh, someone from the American company who was um, who was working here for a while, and um, they used to come into when we used to have um, regular um, 
circulation meetings with our distributor in the boardroom. There'd be about 20 people around this table. And we'd have what we sort of laughingly call the competitive set on the table. And it'd be everything from Men's Health to Esquire to Shortlist to blah, 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 blah. All these magazines. And at the beginning of the noughties, there were lots of them because there were lots of magazines. And I think he must have been here about seven or eight years ago. And there was a copy of FHM on the table, which at that time was probably selling about 50,000 copies. He says, why is this here? Because it's not, editorially it's got nothing to do with you, and it doesn't seem to be particularly successful. And me or someone else would have said, well, because if you'd have been in this room six, year, six or seven years previously, that magazine would have been selling 900,000 copies a month. It sold 900,000 copies. It was a very important, very successful mm. magazine, yeah. And you don't take that kind of success lightly. Do you ever get personal criticism from readers? Because I know that, rightly so, some of our covers, well, not covers, but some of our editorials have been provocative, like the Johnny Depp one. How do you deal, do you respond to anyone? It depends. I'm not... I um, I'm not on Twitter. No. I I tried to be on Twitter twice. I don't like it. I find it a combination. It's too aggressive, mm. and it's too kind of PR driven. I just don't like it. I think in, Instagram is a far more effective form of marketing, which I use it for. I've got no. I mean, I've got no interest in telling someone my opinions for free on on, on social <laughs> media, and then just because someone has an opinion, it doesn't necessarily mean it's worth repeating. Um, so I'm not interested in Twitter. I know what goes on. I pick up stuff. Of course I do. I'm not stupid. But um, uh, yeah, if someone if someone writes to me individually through whatever means, I invariably respond. Do you get letters? Uh, it's usually emails, but yeah, I get le- letters. And if I think their complaint is um, um, considered, then I will respond. I had an email from someone internally actually in the last month complaining about something that Matt Dancone had written and I was very quick in my, in, uh, with my very robust response. I'd say out of everyone, he's a very thoughtful... The problem that we have at the moment, and it, it will change, and Matt wrote... This was, this, the, was the, um, the, the... I commissioned him to write a piece about the Times putting all of their writers out of the comment awards because they... Would, were at odds with uh, a particular journalist whose ideas, the ideas that she espoused, they took issue with. And his, then I commissioned this piece. I didn't have to brief Matt because I knew what he would write. And his very considered and very smart response, re- response was, well, these days, if you, if you write a piece of comment, you will invariably annoy somebody. Even if you, but, and now, even if you annoy one person, one person, it makes that piece invalid because you've upset somebody. That's not comment. What was the situation of the Johnny Depp story? There was uh, this contretemps around that. What were the, your thoughts in terms of running, running that piece? Oh, very, very, very simple thoughts. We were offered Johnny Depp, I think because nothing to do with his issues with um, Amber Heard. Um, uh, but to do with the piece that was in Rolling Stone where he allowed a journalist to spend a considerable amount of time with him and this journalist had written what seemed like a very accurate and quite funny portrayal of him at, at, at home sort of drinking himself to death. Um, and I said, well, what's in it for us? 
and I we got to say I said if you allow our journalist access and if you allow our journalist to ask him any question that he wants to and to talk openly about the issue the allegations of uh, abuse his issues with um, the production team, uh, the, 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 the film company between pirates, all of these things. If he'll agree to answer all the questions, yes, we will do it. And that's what happened. And again, because I'm not on Twitter, I didn't read a lot of the stuff, but I know there was huge outcry because it seemed to me that a lot of people took, a, took offence at us allowing him the oxygen of publicity. They were all journalists, interestingly. I, which I think is pathetic because you're basically saying because someone's accused him of something he is guilty and so you GQ are not in the position to, to, to write anything about it we were positive it was a very open piece uh, and it's a great piece of journalism and I stand by it completely 100% I think Alist- and it sold well I think Alistair Campbell once said that um, if you could ride a scandal out for seven days you'd be fine politically because it, yeah. it would go do you feel that that, True. that, that cycle has, has shortened uh, no, I, I'd say it's. A, it's I'd, I'd say it's. Um, I think it lasted about seven days. Yeah, I, I think. I think it's kind of the same actually, because I remember I was going away on a job uh, or holiday. I can't remember. I was leaving the country, and I said to the person who wrote it, because it, it was the onslaught was quite. It was quite intense for a couple of days, and I said, "How are you?" He said, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm okay. And I said, well, you've got about another four four or five days of this. So just turn everything off, play with your children, and forget about it, because it will be over. But it will, it's not going to be, you know, it'll be ugly for a while. Mm. And it was. But in that case, we weren't often, when we do things, we're looking to be annoying and to kick up dust. and to. to uh, but we weren't in that case. We, I just thought it was the right thing to do. And often we've done things which... I've thought of been the right thing to do. Not, I haven't always been proved correctly, but I've had, I mean, I've had huge arguments with the team, particularly about politics, because I went through a period of being very pro the Conservative Party. Um, we did a lot with David Cameron, we did a lot with Boris, um, but I think actually we anticipated the mood of the, com- of, of the country, and I think we were r- right. And now the world and this country is very different, and we have slightly more circumspect views of the Conservative Party. But I had huge rows with the team about hiring Piers Morgan. And they said, no one will agree to be interviewed. And it's just after he'd been fired at the edition of the Mirror. I said, exactly the opposite. People will look upon it as a challenge. And they did. As a final question, do you think, um, you know, in, in recent years, Graydon Carter has stepped down from, from Vanity Fair, um, that there's a, there was a kind of generation of maybe grandee is the wrong word, but magazine editors who were big cultural figures who held the jobs for a long time and, and had this, this sort of social status. It's been suggested that era is over or is coming coming to an end. Do you think that's true? Um, I think that it's never... I think if you take brands, particularly newspapers and magazines, I think that often they are helped if uh, the person who has you know, custodial care of them is a big personality and is prepared to stick their head above the parapet. I don't think it's necessary. Um, do I think that era is coming to an end? In some respects it might be. Um, 
I don't know, actually. Um, I don't think it's necessary, but I think that often it helps. I think that in the in the age of social media that we're in at the moment, it might be even more important than it once was. Mm. Don't know. Well, listen, thanks for being such a, a candid and open guest. And, Thank um, you. It's been fun. Wishing Thank you Dylan. all the very best with, with this episode, sorry, with this issue, and, um, and going forward as well. You're very kind. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Hello, it's us again. Um, we're going to have a bit of a change of form here because I'm going away for the next month, so we're not uh, offering a sequential update, but rather we're going to have a bit of a discussion of what we were talking about. So, um, Ellie, what were your thoughts on the interview with Dylan? Uh, it was great. Um, it was a very surreal experience for me, having uh, never interviewed him before. Um, having I've worked with Dylan for three years now, and um, it was great to be able to ask him all the things that I'd wanted to know all these years and hadn't been able to ask. Um, I thought he's a really great interviewee, um, very honest and very good at remembering anecdotes from all the way back to the, to the 80s, very specific anecdotes, which uh, I found very interesting. Enough sucking up there from Ellie. Um, and I was, uh, I was struck by his, uh, his bright orange socks and his cufflinks, which you won't see on the podcast because it's an oral medium. But I thought it was very interesting. Um, we've had a few people with big jobs on, on the podcast before, the editor of the FT, the editor of TLS, and, and always very interesting to see in different corners of the industry how people work that one. So I thought, yeah, very... I think as well it will galvanise some writers to pitch him some good ideas because he was quite honest about how... Uh, Writers never have ideas. Writers never have ideas and he hasn't had a good pitch for a long time. Yeah. So. Anyway, this has been Always Take Notes, hosted by me, Simon Aikham. And me, Eleanor Hall. Our producer is Nicola Keane. Our social media editor is Zara Hankier. Our music is by Jess Danheiser. And our graphic design is by James Edgar. You can follow us on social media. We are on Instagram uh, at Always Take Notes uh, and on Facebook. And on Twitter at Take Notes Always. You can also find us on iTunes and we'd love it if you could leave a review if you enjoyed the episode. And finally, we have a crowdfunding page on Patreon, uh, also under Always Take Notes. And if you felt like chipping in there, we'd be very grateful. Thank you. Thank you.